Donald Trump is probably the most divisive American president there has ever been. And when he visited the UK in the summer of 2018, he was welcomed by thousands of protesters in London, as well as a six-metre-high, inflatable depiction of the president as a wailing baby flying high over Westminster. At the time, Nigel Farage called this act the biggest ever insult to a sitting president. One of Trump Baby's co-founders, Max Wakefield, said Donald Trump is one of the world's biggest bullies and you have to stand up to bullies and good old-fashioned British humour is one such method. Trump Baby was born from a successful crowdfunding campaign and has now appeared at numerous protests around the world. Listen in as Max reveals the story behind the birth of the big orange baby. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is your London Legacy. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today Max Wakefield, who is probably not a household name to most of our listeners. However, Trump Baby probably is a name that most of you guys are familiar with. And Max was one of the, what do you call yourself, a co-founder? Trump Babysitters. You're a Trump Babysitter? Yeah. (laughs) How does that work? The Trump babysitter. Yeah. We're, well, there was a group of us. Uh, he's a big baby, so, you know, it's not a, it's not a solo job. And, uh, you know, over a period of, well, I guess it was actually six months from start to finish, we kind of birthed and then raised and launched this enormous inflatable orange thing to the world. So, so most, if not all, of our listeners will be more than familiar and have a deep love of Trump baby. And that's why we've got Max on the uh, podcast today, because obviously he has left along with his babysitters, a wonderful legacy for us in London and the rest of the world. So I want to dig a little bit into, well, quite, quite deeply into how Trump Baby came about and the reasons for it and what you're doing, doing with him going forward. But I'm also interested in what led you to become interested in this activity, shall we say, and how you got involved with the creation of Trump Baby. Because you are, as we were speaking sort of off mic before, you are politically astute or socially aware, shall we say. I'll take that. Going back to your student days, I believe. So if you could just fill us in a little bit about your interest and passion for politics and social awareness and climate change. Going, I don't know how far back you go, because I believe you were heavily involved at uh, the student union in Bristol University, was it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, fundamentally, although, you know, as I've got older and older, you know, I've started joining the dots uh, more and more. The original jump off point for me in terms of having a, a kind of social engagement with the world was environmentalism at least as far as it kind of became conceptualized, I guess. And that probably happened around 14, 15, kind of mid-teens, at least when I remember it. I think 2006 was a year when, for some reason, climate change kind of emerged somewhat into the mainstream. And I can't Yeah, I mean, really... 14, 15 is very young to become yeah. aware uh, well, of issues I like think... climate change, I would have thought. I'm not sure. I reckon if you talk to most 14, 15-year-olds today, they'd have some, you know, they'd have some interest in it. I do some work with young people at the minute, albeit uh-huh. kind of 16, 17-year-olds. And... Maybe this generation, maybe my generation were more, more running around playgrounds. And <laughs> Well, in fairness to, to you guys, climate change wasn't really on the table when yeah, you were 14, that's very 15, true. or at least we didn't we know about true it. The damage we, we weren't aware of the damage we were causing to um, the environment. Indeed. So, I mean, that was kind of where it all kicked off. I mean, and it's still what it's still where I will put most of my energy and, and time today. But, you know, where I was kind of naively probably more able to compartmentalize issues when I was a, a 15 year old and think that we could just treat climate change as a thing that uh, existed independently of other political dynamics and systems and we could just fix. I no longer really believe that. So I guess some, I would hopefully say a more mature unfolding of a kind of border consciousness. So yeah, you- I just feel I guess, you know, I just feel it. And then 
I, I try and unpack those feelings into into thoughts and, and concepts that I'm interested in, interested so in following. So were you brought up in an environment, a family environment, who were sort of active politically or discussed politics to and social s- issues? To, to some extent. I mean, my, in some ways, I would say my family are a fairly typical kind of liberal middle class North London family. I think at one point my dad ran to be a councillor for the SDP in, you know, the 80s or something. Yeah. And he's always been very, you know, he's very well informed politically. Never by my estimation particularly radical I certainly count myself as more left than him and I'm sure he would he would too but there's always been the ability to have interesting well-informed conversations mm-hmm. and you know there's always been a, there was always a kind of strong idea of moral interest and consideration of what the right thing to do is so I guess you know if you take that to a uh, to its full extent then that takes you into the arena of, of politics and trying sure. to work out what's what's right to do at a social level so having a discussion about politics and social awareness and the world in general is one thing but actually taking action is uh and and getting people off their bums is a completely other uh, thing so is there a tipping point in your recollection that moved you to do something was it when you went to university and got involved with the student union one of the most formative experiences i think i had in terms of how i viewed the world and and taking action and and also the powers that be was um in 2008 when i went to something called climate camp climate camp was a movement in the UK uh, that ran from about 2006 to probably 2011. It actually was, there was a climate camp in Bishopsgate in I think that was maybe 2010, 2011, which is where Ian Tomlinson was famously killed by Metropolitan Police. And three years earlier, there was a climate camp next to King's North Power Station on the Thames Estuary in Kemp, which is actually now gone. There was a kind of symbolic destruction of the, uh, the smokestack yeah. a couple of years ago which is very no, uh, very gratifying yeah. for anyone who was in 2008 but at that time the owner of that power station eon big german company was attempting to build new coal-fired power stations in the uk would you believe it and uh and about 30 new coal-fired power stations across europe and this camp set up camp for a week a couple of miles from the power station and it brought together about a thousand two thousand people to do all sorts of things but with the aim of on the saturday i think of the of the week to go and shut down the power station for a day to take direct action against something that was obviously incompatible with any kind of uh, yeah. meaningful action on climate change. And at the start of that, it was, it was a bizarre week because the police basically shut down the area, completely encircled the camp, put out what's called a section 60 on miles of countryside around it, which basically meant they could stop and search you without any due, without any evidence and, and in practice without any due process. And, uh, and then also attempted to invade the camp um, on the first night I was there, I woke up at five o'clock in the morning to, you know, riot police charging in. And it was the first time I'd seen violence. And it, and the sound of it, I just still remember, you know, people just being bashed with sticks. and Sounds like and a throwback to the old C&D sort of... Uh, it, was, it was really, you know, and... like, what was I, 20, maybe mm. 19? And uh, I kind of suddenly clocked, you know, just in an instant. You're like, oh, right, I kind of get it, you know. <laughs> this is what happens when you when you're seen to go too far, you know, when you're creating too much trouble. And uh, it really kind of yanked me into a, into a perspective um, that I probably have never left. It's kind of, you know, that was 10, 11 years ago or whatever. I've meandered from there, but I think it, it kind of rooted in me a sense that I've got enormous respect for anyone who stands up and puts themselves in the way of potential danger for what they believe in. And ultimately, that pretty much always has to happen to some extent to put the urgency of issues that need addressing in a being... Uh, sidelined on the table so that was very inspiring and terrifying at the same time but it was pretty formative well there's a a long history and tradition of um, the sort of action that you're talking about in this country thank god 
but there's also a history of you know a more subtle history of action being put down in the way where you talk mm. about throughout the generations. But you're involved in it's a charity, Action Ten Ten. Ten Ten Climate Action, yeah. Right. So yeah. tell us a bit about that. So Ten Ten was actually set up around the same time. Nothing to do with me. So 2009. In 2009, there was a, a international conference on climate change in Copenhagen, and it was supposed to be the conference at which the world finally, after about 20 years of trying since the late 80s, actually signed a binding deal on the reduction of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases uh, in line with the best available science at the time. And there was a lot of hype running up to it. You know, it was probably, and probably still is actually, the, the, the period of time where climate change was highest up the news agenda, where there was the highest level of engagement and awareness about it. And prior to that, in 2008, a film had been made called The Age of Stupid, which was a film made by someone called Franny Armstrong, who made a film called McLibel that you might have heard of. And it uh, was fairly doom-laden, in fairness. Uh, it was kind of set in the future, and it had Pete Postlethwaite looking back from you know his his bunker in the Arctic in 2030. Post-apocalyptic sort of. Yeah, basically. And he was kind of looking back a lot. He looks back a lot at archive footage and, and, and kind of just wonders, like, what on earth didn't we do something? And, you know, he's reviewing The Age of Stupid, which is perhaps still the age we live in now. Anyway, that film did a lot to get people very agitated who watched it uh, and worried about climate change. And they, a lot of the feedback to the film was like, okay, great, but what do we do? And so 1010 was created by some of the people that had been involved in making that film as a response to it. Um, to give people something to do. It launched in late 2009 and it was a campaign before it was an organisation and it gave people a simple option to take on the challenge of cutting their carbon emissions by 10% in 2010, uh -huh. hence 1010. Yeah. And you could sign up as an individual or a small business or a local council or a government department, TFL signed up. You know, it kind of, there was 150 businesses, corporates, all sorts of people got on board. The Guardian was uh, a media partner. The Sun was actually also supposed to be a media partner, would you believe it? Until about a month before this supposed joint media launch between The Guardian and The Sun, the uh, News Corp uh, story broke in The Guardian. So you can imagine The Sun wasn't too pleased to work with The Guardian after yeah. that point. Anyway, the campaign ran. It, it was pretty successful. And the organization then, then outlived the campaign. And it's nearly 10, so it'd be 10, 10 next year. And I started working for 1010 Climate Action, how long ago? Two and a half, over two and a half going on three years ago. So what is it? It's a registered charity? It's a charity. It's a small, it's a small climate charity. It's actually, believe it or not, it's actually one of the few if kind of only campaigning organizations specifically set up, uh, nationally kind of focused campaigning organizations specifically set up around climate change. Obviously, large environmental groups out there like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth but they do lots of other things apart from climate change. So it's kind of remarkable that given the size of the challenge we face, there's, there's uh, actually not, not many organisations set up specifically to, to get people active on it. But our role and mission is to create as many opportunities as possible for people to take action, take climate action. Um, this is on an individual level. Well, you know, we, we create opportunities at different scales. You know, our, our, our mantra is that public engagement is necessary for the speed of the transition we need to see. And you can cash out public engagement at different scales. You can cash it out on an individual level. You could cash it out on um, a community level. You could cash it out at a local government level. You could cash it out at, uh, at the employee level. There's various different spaces in which you can enable people to take different kinds of action. And, you know, we believe that individual action is important, but um, that it, on its own will certainly not solve the problem. But Likewise, we simply we can't just have uh, institu institutional changes imposed downwards. You know, everything needs to work simultaneously to create a kind of symbiotic si situation in which actually we move as fast as possible. 
with as much consent and as and enthusiasm as possible for the rapid change we need to see. So that's that's what we aim at. It's not that straightforward uh, for a group of 10 people. And of course, we're not going to solve the whole thing on our, on our own. We're, we're contributing to a much wider body of action. And there's all sorts of different tactics from legal challenges to blocking bridges. Um, and it's all good. You know, it all needs to be there. Um, but we, you know, we, we eschewed the idea that you can, you can solve climate change without people, basically. So was the recent action in London to do with Action 1010? No. So Extinction Rebellion is a really interesting new uh, movement in the UK that looks like it will start sprouting chapters internationally as well that is attempting to re-energize the UK kind of radical direct action climate movement, which, you know, has had different homes in the past. Climate camp, you know, would, would be would have been one of them in the kind of late noughties. That kind of morphed in some ways into something called Reclaim the Power, which um, has focused quite heavily on anti-fracking linking up with anti-fracking protesters around the country and being very successful at doing so uh extinction rebellion from what i can glean i actually haven't been around yet enough uh to go and get involved but i've been you know paying close attention because it's it's fascinating what's going on there is uh basically taking a civil disobedience approach to raising climate change up the political agenda so it's using disruption they would argue dis yeah, justified disruption, and I, I would agree with them, to force people to contemplate the urgency. So it's a means of, of raising really. awareness through... Yeah, and I think, no, you're, you're never going to satisfy everyone with your tactics. And that's why diversity of tactics, I think, is always needed. And I think it is fair to say that actually the civil disobedience end and the more radical direct action end of, of the UK climate movement has been muted over, I would say, maybe the last five years in comparison to potentially how active it has been in the past, with the exception of, of the anti-fracking movement. And, you know, I think it's high, high time, you know, we just had the IPCC report, the International Panel on Climate Change, basically the, the global scientific authority on climate change, put its uh, reports out on what would be needed to have, you know, a 50 to 66% chance of keeping global temperatures around 1.5 degrees uh, higher than above, uh, above pre-industrial temperatures by the end of the century. And, you know, it gives us 12 years to, to nearly half... Uh, global carbon emissions that is a phenomenal challenge and um if you're serious about the future of the planet and the future of the generations of people that will live in it um you, you need to take urgent action and we haven't seen that in the months following that report so you know i i challenge anyone in the context of the scientific evidence we have at hand to um tell me why blocking some bridges to put this on the national news agenda is not justified so we'll fair, see where it goes yeah fair fair point and obviously with um wonderful leaders like we have in america <laughs> or the more urgent uh, not, not supporting <laughs> yeah or believing in uh, the evidence scientific evidence put before them it's it's pretty frightening scenario oh it's it's really it's really scary and i think you know I, different people who work in and around the climate change space whether it's professionally or in activism journalism or or as climate scientists my god i mean i could not be a climate scientist have different ways of kind of basically coping with with the cold hard reality of it all and you know we're all built differently so we all have kind of different emotional responses to you know i kind of periodically go through periods of just uh you know total kind of despair but you can't stick you can't stay like that forever i mean ultimately i think the the really important thing that people need to understand about climate change because i think it's very easy when confronted with something very complicated and scary and abstract and global and all the rest of it to just kind of throw your hands up and say oh well you know basically we're fucked so it's our fault, you know, we're going to pay for it. I, I can't do anything and just kind of crack on with your life. And there's two fundamental issues with that approach. One, there isn't a we, actually. The global dynamics of climate change are such that the people who will be 
most affected by it will have their livelihoods and lives taken by it and are least able to protect themselves from it are the people who have done least to cause it. That's basically a kind of bizarre geographical quirk. That being a geographical and generational yeah. thing So as the well. global south and exactly and the yeah. young uh, and particularly women because uh, in the global south women are always burdened most by um, societal breakdown. So there isn't a we. So we can't in the West simply say, oh, well, we, you know, we cause this problem, we'll pay for it. No, we cause this problem. Other people will pay for it more than us. So that's the first thing. And secondly, yeah, to some extent we are a bit fucked, but how fucked is really important. And you have to think about climate change as probably the, the most gargantuan risk management exercise human society, global society has ever embarked on. And we are just, we are trying to manage outcomes here. We don't know exactly which outcome we're going to get. We know that we want the best possible outcome. We don't know what that is, but we know all the things we need to be doing to increase the probability of the best case outcome from any point in time looking forward. There is no point in time at which it is justified to say, ah, that's it, we're done. So you just have to pick yourself up, really, and just keep Sounds going. a bit like Brexit. <laughs> we know, I mean... We know, we know it's going to be a crap outcome. Crikey. We just don't know exactly how Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we, could, if we could just sort Brexit quickly and then move on to some bigger issues, well, I'd be really pleased. Well, that's the trouble, isn't it? I mean, Brexit really has pleased. completely subsumed the whole political oh, landscape in the don't. last couple of years. And um, no, no one else has got to look in all the, the, the really big issues. I mean, well, we've stopped governing, basically. But um, anyway, I mean, uh, yes, maybe. I don't know if we want this podcast to be about Brexit or not. But <laughs> not probably particularly. Not. <laughs> not particularly. No, no. We probably divide this. When is this, this going out? We might, we might even know what's going to Well, happen. it doesn't matter when it's going out because Brexit probably still It'll will be resolved and the country will still be divided. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... You're obviously heavily involved in climate change matters. And how yeah. does that impact? You're also involved in another organization, Demand Energy uh, Equality. Equality yeah. yeah. So that I've been involved in for quite a long time, since 2011. So, And I've kind of moved around. My relation to it is, has, has, has changed over time. A very good friend of mine, Daniel Quiggin, and I both used to live in Bristol. I lived in Bristol for about six years. Studied there. Then worked for the Students' Union, as you mentioned. And then I worked there for a bit. So I was there in, in total... F- for, for quite a while and have a very great love for it and while I was there actually while I was working for the student union myself and Dan bumped into each other at a festival and he was running a down in the center of town he was running a stall teaching people how to build solar panels out of basically cast off solar cells so solar cells are the wafer thin blue bits yeah. the kind of blue squares um, that you see if you look at a solar panel and in the industrial process of assembling panels some of them are damaged or you know there's a there's a quality control process basically that will discard some of them and dan had somehow managed to find out how to get hold of these and actually once you've got them it's a pretty simple task uh with a bit of uh, with a you know some solder and a soldering iron and some wire to basically hook them up into a simple series circuit and lo and behold you've got a you've got your own solar panel and it's a really interesting device he discovered for engaging people in questions around energy and the basic physics of energy and wider conversations about sustainability and climate change much more interesting than kind of sitting someone down in a room just talking to them so about the, it. these are practical workshops that you're delivering yeah so so we you know i would say and Dan hopefully would agree, agree with me that it, you know, it was a kind of glorified hobby for him at that point. He was getting little pots of funding to do outreach into the community. Uh, and then about six or nine months after I kind of got involved a little bit, we set up a, a community interest company and tried to turn it and fairly successfully did turn it into a kind of small social enterprise that could stand on its own two feet. And we did a mix of running workshops for paying punters and then use that to you know, cross-subsidize and add in funding to run outreach workshops either for free or for much lower cost to different groups in the community 
And we also did a couple of uh, public art projects in, in Bristol, working with a, a Bristol-based artist called John Packer, who's an incredible sculptor. And uh, he and Dan had both independently stumbled across the notion of a solar tree, uh, which was invented by this kind of genius 13-year-old North American maths whiz kid um, who basically kind of hypothecated, well, trees obviously live off the sun. Uh, so maybe if we arranged solar panels in the formation that a tree naturally arranges its leaves, we would, over the annual cycle, taking into account the seasons and the changing position of the sun, get an overall increased Mm-hmm. output from the solar panels and so we designed this this kind of mini contraption to test it out and john and dan had both stumbled across this and one were kind of interested in, to see if it actually worked at a bigger scale and two just thought it looked nice and so we, we so we, the artwork is a, is, a, is a tree with solar panels small solar panels built into it as, as yeah it's 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 uh, so we actually did two we did one as a prototype in 2012 and another followed in 2015 that is still now in the in Millennium Square in Bristol, which is one of the big kind of central public squares in Bristol, uh, and is now attached to the Science Museum in Bristol. So it's kind of become a an exhibit, uh, an outdoor exhibit within that estate. And both were done working with different groups in the community. The first was uh, we just we invited uh, individuals down and did outreach to various community groups. And over three days in relatively unhelpful weather conditions under pretty um, shoddy gazebos uh, running off batteries because there was no power on site. We managed to teach people how to build enough panels to put, put on the tree. And then the second time around, we were working with the Bristol Drugs Project, which is an amazing charity in Bristol that does drug re- rehabilitation uh-huh. uh, and recovery work. So they built most of the panels that went on the second tree. So it's a kind of combination of a social work project, an educational project, a public art project. And um, yeah, it's still there today. It's still generating electricity and there are little charging points that anyone walking through the square can plug their phone into and charge their phone so the goal of the organization is primarily educational yeah it's primarily educational it's not i mean it it has a kind of strong view about um the politics of energy and the you know the, the kind of basic pillars of of a strategy that we need in order to decarbonize energy and transition to to a low carbon world primarily reducing energy demand and then moving to renewables and so we kind of use the workshops as ways to engage people in, in those concepts and to give them a basic scientific understanding of energy and also of electricity and, and solar panels uh, and then to give them some practical skills and you know interest, an interesting experience that mm. they can take away and at the end of it they walk away with uh, their own diy solar panel that can charge the phone from a windowsill or you can take it to a festival or if you've got a long bike ride that sounds it back fun and interesting and Obviously informative, educational. Yeah, absolutely. So you're clearly a passionate activist in the climate change arena. So how and where... Well, obviously we know that Trump was paying a visit to us, to, yeah. our, to our wonderful city in... Was it June of this year? I think it was June, the early summer no, of this year. No, I think it was year. early July. Was, was it, it July? It was Friday the 13th of July. Right. <laughs> it would have to be, wouldn't it? <laughs> Unreal, yeah. So at what point in time did you think... Hang on a second... Trump, you know, he's a figure of much derision mm. over here in this country, a much hated figure, I would say, by, by many, mm-hmm. uh, although much loved by many in America, unfortunately. And unfortunately by some people here as well. Yeah, by, by some people here as well. What was the pity? At what point did you think, okay, Trump's coming over here, what can we do about it to mm. raise aw- awareness of our disdain for this guy? <laughs> well, at this point, I have to uh, hat tip to my colleague, Leo Murray. So the story of how Trump Baby came about starts with Leo, I think, being in the bath 
sometime in in December. That's where all best ideas originate. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) December 2017, I guess it would have been. So maybe it was over Christmas, uh, uh, New Year holiday. And uh, he was kind of musing away on on Trump, who at that point was supposed to be turning up uh, at the tail end of February. So that was the the original plan. So it was was only two months away at that point. And, uh, you know, Leo is a, a kind of relentlessly creative campaigner who has chalked up all sorts of interesting uh, campaign victories. And, and there's nothing really that Leo won't have a go at. And uh, this was no different. So suddenly, for some reason, into Leo's head pops the idea of an infl- a giant inflatable Trump baby. And the genesis of that is that you can't engage Donald Trump in any kind of moral critique. He has no moral compass. You can't engage him in any kind of evidential debate because he doesn't believe in facts. The only way you can get to him is by attacking the only thing he holds dear, which is his own, his own self-image uh, and his own ego. And, you know, and Trump Baby was, as a, as a concept, designed specifically to kind of poke him in the bits that he would feel it most keenly. The question was, how do you, you know, it's all very well coming up with this, this sort of caricature of it, but how do, you, how do you get him to actually see it? And so that was where the idea of making something massive and floating it in the air above Parliament so Square was this, came is, from. is this designed by committee or was it, it was just all so, in, in Leo's mind? Or did so you sit down and think, well, what can we do? How can we design it? So Leo had the kind of original notion. Leo is still an animator to some extent. He used to professionally be an animator. Doesn't, doesn't do that for money anymore. But he kind of started scribbling out some drawings of... of, of uh, this character that he created. And another colleague of mine, Matt Bonner, is a professional graphic designer and very skilled and has created all sorts of amazing imagery and, and logos and, and designs for lots of different political causes and, and campaigns. And he and Leo kind of went through the stages of, of taking this original concept and, and actually getting it drawn up into something that became the icon uh, that I think it's fair to say Trump baby, Trump baby is today. And and originally, actually, his face was, he was crying because obviously that's a kind of basic trope for a baby. But it it was decided that was too sympathetic towards him. And so he he ended up with this kind of... Too sympathetic. Too sympathetic (laughs) towards him. I guess you may perhaps feel sorry for somebody who's who's crying. Uh And uh, so he ended up with this kind of enraged grimace. uh, I'm just looking at a picture of him here uh, in in front of me on a printout. Yeah. He's, He's got this as you say, he's got a sort of open mouth, teethy sort of yeah. snarl. It's like a oh. kind of constipated <laughs> anger. Um, it's you know you don't you do certainly do not feel sorry for that face. So basically, that 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 was the kind of formation of it. And at that point, it was supposed to be end of February that he was turning up. So it was kind of all all, all hands uh, on the pump. Leo ran off and persuaded someone to give him a bit of money to get the original balloon fabricated. And then once that was done, it was a case of you know basically putting together a plan to actually to actually get him up but then trump called off the visit so trump baby <laughs> he must have heard of your plans well, and he shat himself <laughs> well we'd love to think so although i think at this point we were still un- sufficiently under the radar that trump wasn't going to know anything about us anyway so he went into uh, into storage and uh you know we kind of just waited because it was almost certain that he was going to come back anyway fast forward about three months and he gets to may and uh, it's announced that he's turning up in uh, at the start of July. And so I'm trying to remember exactly what order this went in. The, it was a combination of... So previous, at that point, we then put in an application to the GLA. Uh-huh. GLA controls, the, controls Parliament Square, the ground of Parliament Square. If you want to do a protest there, you have to get their permission. 
which is fairly ridiculous, but that's how it is. There was obviously other major demonstrations planned for Friday the 13th because there were lots of people that wanted to come out and show their opposition to Trump. The answer we got back fairly rapidly was a kind of computer says no response. Basically, they didn't want the complication. The officials at GLA didn't want the complication of this. Q, a fair amount back and forth between Leo and the GLA, still no budging. So we went public with a kind of simultaneous, on the one hand, petition that people could sign to get Trump baby, to, to ask the GLA to give Trump baby permission to fly. And then simultaneously a crowdfunding site, initially only asking for about 1,500 quid to fund the helium to actually get him airborne. And quite quickly, it started snowballing. I think we managed to get a kind of small column in the G2 at one point. I think the Metro picked up on it. And at some point, it just, it just started kind of rolling faster and faster of its own accord mm. people started signing the petition you know the, the crowdfunding site started flying through all the targets that we uh were increasing for it we had to come up with basically new ideas as to what we'd actually do with the extra money because you can't just take money and no. not have any plan for it so we came up with the idea of a global tour for baby trump uh after he'd done his uh, done his london showpiece and that went on for about two weeks and then when it really just sort of left the left the atmosphere completely blasted off was with the announcement that GLA had actually decided in retrospect they were going to give permission for Trump baby to fly and at that point it, it just turned into basically an international media scrum I mean that is kind of really the only way that I could possibly describe it I mean it was completely bizarre we were having to turn away you know film crews because we just didn't have enough space so where were they coming to, to accommodate where, where, where it was stored so we did a test inflation about two weeks before the actual launch. And at that point, I can't remember if we had GLA approval at that point. I feel like that was just before we got the GLA thumbs up. But we still had them. We had people coming down from American outlets. We had people coming from Japanese news, Chinese, lots of British outlets. Then I think in the intervening period, GLA said, yeah. Then it went completely, then it went completely off the hook. And everyone wanted to come and do another another set of interviews in front of him. We were like, well, we've already blown him up once. We don't have any other plans to blow him up before the day. And so we had to hastily organize this second kind of fake test launch <laughs> just so that we could get another, whatever it was, 15 film crews down. So we did, you know, we basically just put him up in a little park around the back of King's Cross uh, on a Tuesday afternoon and had the world's media there. So, you know, we were just running around like, what, like headless chickens, basically. Uh, we had, you know, interviews every day on the radio, on TV. And it kind of every day you thought, Obviously, we've peaked here. There's no possible way that we could get any more kind of attention or any more traction in the media. And then the next day, something, you know, Newsnight would ring you up or the Today programme would, would want you on. And then, you know, just all, we basically hit every single major news programme or outlet uh, in the period of about two weeks. So it was, it, was, it was pretty knackering. It was obviously hilariously good fun and way beyond the kind of wildest aspirations mm. we might have had uh, near the beginning for how, for how far it could travel. And that was before we'd even... That's before the actual big day done itself. The actual day. Yeah. So I mean, were you getting any negative feedback from America itself or from the White House? Did they have any input or any comments on what you were doing? As in officially? Yeah. No, so it wasn't until... So we only... You know, the only thing that Trump said about it was when he was he was asked in the interview that he did on the eve of his visit uh, he got an exclusive interview with the son mm. or rather the son got an exclusive interview of him which hilariously he then the day after came out and, and said was fake news at which point the son released released the verbatim recording of the entire interview just to prove that he had said all of the yeah. things that they'd written down but anyway in that they asked him about the um 
Trump maybe because you know everyone was asking him about it at this point. The U.S. ambassador had been asked whether or not he'd seen it and confirmed that he had seen it, but we didn't know what he thought about it. And he he said exactly what we wanted him to say, which was basically, if London is is going to put up a blimp of me, or I can't remember his exact wording, but basically, if London's going to put up a, a nasty blimp of me, then I don't want to come. And he was like, "Well, that's great." Donald, because we don't want you to come. So mission accomplished. So it's incredibly gratifying. And so that, you know, that meant that we'd kind of achieved actually what we wanted to achieve, which was to stick two fingers up. I to can't it. remember what his visit for. It was just um, a state golf visit. Mainly. To... <laughs> well, mainly. It was golf. a state visit to meet sort of Theresa May at the number 10? Or it was it? was. He was on the way back from somewhere. I feel like he was on the way back from Saudi Arabia or somewhere in the Middle East. It was, uh, you know, there'd been this kind of return visit arranged when Theresa May had first scrambled over to be the first kind of European leader to see him after his election, after his inauguration in early t- 2017. And so it was, you know, it was effectively, they, they tried several times to get this to happen. And every time it, they'd had to pull back because they knew the protests were going to be massive. And eventually they were like, we've just kind of got to do this. It was only, it was only here for less than 48 hours. He mainly just trolled Theresa May by telling her that Boris Johnson would be a better prime minister and then went off to Scotland to play yeah. golf. So I, I don't remember, think it was a massively productive trip. No, I remember all the discussions in, I think it was even raised in, in comments, wasn't it? Whether he should come or whether he shouldn't. And yes, he's our closest ally and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So of course we've got to have him. And yeah, be, yeah. Be, be the first to have him. So come the big day. Yeah. You've got this. Uh, the other thing I understand, you also had to get permission from the uh, oh, air traffic control as well. All sorts. I mean, it was. It which was is bizarre. I mean, we, it wasn't even fly- how high it was. It was tethered to ropes. So the issue is, understandably, if you put something up high enough in the sky, someone needs to know about it so that people don't fly into it. That makes sense. That generally is set, I think, at sixty meters. So as long as you're below sixty meters, you can basically, as long as you know what you're doing and the weather's uh, the weather conditions are acceptable, put something up and you'll be fine. However, because there was a obviously major operation, police operation going on that day because of the protests and because Trump in a helicopter somewhere was flying over the capital at some point, leaving West Windsor and, and heading wherever, there was restricted airspace that day. So in order to, you know, which sets the default, therefore, as a kind of no, unless you can get an exception. So we had to go jump for the hoops and get an exception. And because it was a police operation, usually restricted airspace is governed by the Civil, Civil Aviation Authority, yeah. I think, but they handed it on to the police. So you basically just end up jumping through a million bureaucratic hoops. But we got there. Within it, we had, you know, it was kind of down to the wire. You know, even after the GLA said yes, we still had several other permissions to get. And about two days or three days before the actual liftoff, we kind of got them all, got all the ducks in a row and we were ready to go. But yeah, I mean, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. Must have been really exciting, though. It was, yeah, it was hilarious. I mean, it was a really solid crew. You know, by the time we were into the last two or three weeks, We'd expanded to probably eight, nine, ten people. And there was just such a good mix of, uh, you know, people who experienced in, in particular aspects, whether it was, you know, doing media appearances or forming kind of really excellent key messaging or sorting the logistics or dealing with the police or, you know, whatever. You know, we kind of had a range of abilities in it and the whole thing really worked very well we, we didn't really have any meetings you know the whole thing was done without a single meeting really you know a team is 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 well formed when you don't need any meetings to pull off something you're just quite in impressive. the flow all, all singing from the same hymn sheet i guess indeed i think for those of people who can't remember what trump baby looks like just describe him to us in terms of the size and what he's made of and yeah the imagery so he's a he's i think he's 21 foot high i think that's if i'm my memory served me correctly he's a 21 foot high giant orange inflatable baby he's got he's got a massive yellow quip (laughs) he's got a a a very angry face he's got a kind of face that shows a constipated outrage at the world he's got um a couple of little arms sticking out the side almost perpendicular with quite small hands what was the rationale behind that 
facet of his physical. Which you know, bit? Well, the little hands, the little, the little arms. Hands. Well, Orange, know, we all can. <laughs> that's obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was you know ultimately it was it was designed to attack his self esteem, and it's clear that Donald Trump cares about what he looks like. You know, he spends a lot of time clearly tanning quaffing himself, his and quaffing his hair, and all the rest of it. And obviously, in the run up to the actual election, there was all sorts of incredibly crude and, and childish uh, back and forth between mm. various candidates about the size of his hands and by extension, other bits of his <laughs> body. His and, and, and so, you know, that was clearly, for someone as superficial as he, that's where you go. Yeah. We did get some pushback on that. You know, it was a kind of, aren't you stooping to his level? Isn't this body shaming? And like, you know, I think I'll come back on that. Was look, it's all about context. It's and, context you know, and it's you, satire, you, isn't it? It's satire. <laughs> it's, it's sitting in a long tradition uh, and a British, you know, a, a kind of celebrated British tradition of political satire. This is just a 3D cartoon. You know, it could be on the pages of a, a newspaper, but it just happens to be floating in yeah. the sky. So we thought it was appropriate. And it, so he's got yellow hair. He's got um, this quaffed hair. He's got this yellow tone to his skin. This horrible yeah. grimace on his face, as you say, this constipated yeah. look. He's tiny little hands. Tiny little hands with a, with a phone with a mobile in one of them. Because obviously he's tweeting <laughs> he's the tweeting, whole time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he's got a big nappy on and then two little legs sticking out the bottom. And he, he's slightly pear-shaped. He's, he's almost like the... He's, he a is little bit like, like a, a weeble. Russian... Do you remember the weebles? Oh, I don't know. The weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. It's probably from yeah, my, my okay. generation. I think I, I think I think I know what you're talking about. He's sort of a little bit Russian dollesque. He is. Um, I think the the funniest bit I think you haven't mentioned is the little tufts of hair he's got on his chest as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. It's, just, it's hysterical. Yeah. It's a work of genius by Matt and Lee. I've got to, I've got to say, and you know that's I think evidenced by the fact that that icon has now been kind of reworked and rehashed and reproduced so many times well this is what so i wanted to come context. on to because he, he is the original yeah i don't know where, where he's housed now he's probably locked away in some secret location somewhere <laughs> under padlock <laughs> and bunker. Yeah. a storage facility in london you know <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, tell, don't tell everyone <laughs> <laughs> but as you say he's been replicated around yeah. the world now hasn't he i mean america took him on i think they've got several of them all, all around america yeah. he's been used at various events there and various yeah so well even before uh, I mean, this is a long story that I'm going to have to kind of shorten, mm. otherwise I'll end up boring everybody. But even before any replications of, of uh, as in any replica balloons have been made, he, he basically, he's a meme, right? So he, he's turned up in, in every possible kind of version. You know, there's a Twitter meme of him as the Hindenburg crashing and, you know, blowing up. And there was a hilarious one that the German, one of the, I think it's like the German equivalent, like BBC Two did their kind of news program, photoshopped in. <laughs> Uh, Trump baby instead of Donald Trump into all the official photos of his visit so him standing next to Theresa May him greeting the Queen so, I mean well just his head on top no, of no, the, the, whole the, thing, whole thing. the whole thing so just took Donald took Trump out, out entirely and then plonked in, in Trump baby uh, I mean you know hundreds and hundreds of these things yeah. um, so you know it was kind of picked up as an item as a concept and then kind of reproduced in all sorts of different and hilarious contexts people you know we've seen uh, we've seen cards in card shops with him on people have knitted Little versions of him, badges, did T-shirts. Did you consider, uh, could you trademark the image or did you so have any te- rights? Of- technically, you have, as I understand it, and I wasn't really involved in this in this bit of the operation, but there is some kind of default trademark within British law. And I'd, so, you know, if you want to, and you can prove that basically you came up with it first and you wanted to kind of stop someone else using it in a commercial fashion, or I'm not entirely sure how it works, you can kind of do that. So there is a sort of default I think there is a trademark number somewhere knocking around, but this certainly was nowhere near, like, you know, this, this is obviously, we, we weren't setting this up to make any money, and the idea that people would want to replicate it and take it on themselves didn't really occur to us no, at any point, because sure. we didn't expect it to go anywhere near uh, as big as it as it went. As it turns out, people did, and, and actually what we weirdly didn't think of at all is that people in America would, would want to take it on, because obviously we were 
we created it as a response to him visiting a for, what you know what to him is a foreign country and so when we all when we said that the extra money we'd raise would go to a world tour we were thinking other places that trump is visiting around the world so australia argentina paris whatever and we kind of completely missed the fact that the country he's in most of the time is the us and half the country really hate him and so actually there was within well actually even before technically before he'd launched in london there was already people in america sourcing quotes to have replicas made in the US. Were they coming to you, asking you to do it, or were they just taking so on... This is, a bit, this is a long story, but no. Basically, you know, on the Sunday after the Friday when we put him up, we'd, been, we'd also been up to Edinburgh. So we, we, after a long day of running around London, flying the balloon and all the rest of it, we then hopped straight on the night train to... Edinburgh or Glasgow, I can't remember. Because he was visiting oh, one of his golf courses up there, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, and the plan was to go and fly outside his golf course. That couldn't happen for various reasons. So we ended up in doing it in Edinburgh. There was a Trump march, anti-Trump march, obviously, in Edinburgh on the Saturday. So we, we put him up on the, on the meadows at the end of that march. Had a lovely day out in, in Scotland. Got back down to London. You know, we're all completely cooked at this point. And we're just, you know, Leo's about to rush off on holiday for two weeks. And we're like, right, let's just look forward to a week where we don't have to do anything basically but at this, point, at this point we suddenly discover popping up on twitter various different crowdfunders the public crowdfunders in the u.s that are raising at that point already tens of thousands of dollars to fly trump baby claiming that they've got you know balloons in production all the rest of it and like we're none the wiser you know we, we're only finding it we only found out about uh, one of them because there was a washington post article about it and we were like, what is going on here? Like, why has no one come and talk to us about it? Just as a matter of courtesy, really. So we spent about a week at, like trying to follow these threads back and work out who these people were and who, would, who was making them the balloons and where did, what designs were they using, all this kind of stuff. And um, actually, we were totally unprepared for that, if I'm being honest. And we, you know, we didn't really know how to react. There was quite a lot of mixed opinions in the group about whether or not we should just completely let go and let what will be yeah. be or whether we should continue to try and have some kind of stake in it and work with people on that side of the Atlantic to make things happen. And in the end, you know, what happened after about a month or two was what will be will be happened. You know, yeah. we, we, we just, we couldn't possibly keep up with it. And I think actually that was probably the approach that we should have taken at, at the beginning. But it's when you're really in the middle of something and, and when your name is associated with something that's so visible and has so much recognition globally, actually, it's quite difficult to just accept that People are running off and not taking it, but running with it without any uh, engagement with you and, and ultimately no assurance that they're not using it it's, uh, it's, for a purpose yeah. that you might not agree it's, with. It's or a shame whatever. in some respects, but in other respects, it just shows the success of the idea totally, that, yeah. that his totally. reach was, was, was global. Totally. And, you know, the level of derision and hate that he, he's held in across the, yeah, yeah, across yeah. the world. Uh, 100%. Some, some people would ask, okay for Trump to, to do this with Trump why not other leaders who visited yeah. here like yeah. um, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia or yeah, the yeah. President of Turkey or China or whatever what's the reason behind that or, or have you thought of doing it for other personalities politicians no not this particular tactic so that was one of the you know there were a few really common arguments rolled out by usually people on the right like Piers Morgan who for some reason really disliked Trump maybe mainly because he spends most of his time sucking up to Trump himself I think but and, you know, there was a few key refrains to try and undermine what we're doing. One of them was, was that one. It's like, well, hang on. You haven't been out protesting against Mohammed mm. bin Salman or whatever. And actually, yeah, yeah, we had for a start. It's not as if these people come to London and no one gets out on the streets. People do. It's just it doesn't get reported. Sure. Trump brings a whole media circus with him, which means that, you know, his every move is documented. But in terms of the specific tactic, we rewind the conversation a little bit back to why Leo had the idea in the first place and how it ended up taking the form that it did. 
it was you know this was quite a precision guided weapon you know from a campaigning point of view it was specifically designed on the basis of trump's particular personal characteristics you know his la- complete lack of a moral compass his total uh, reluctance well willful ignorance precluding any kind of fact-based debate and his incredible arrogance and and inflated self-esteem that's i wouldn't say that's the the case actually with with other world leaders he's he's I mean, he is unique, let's be honest. I mean, there are some really dreadful world leaders out there, but none of them and I guess, have the I dimensions of Donald Trump. And I he's supposed to be our closest ally. Yeah, and, being, and, that, and, and, a, and a world superpower Absolutely. Well. That is, that is, I think that's a very... Yeah. I mean, I don't think that is ever an argument for not turning out against yeah. Mohammed Bill Salman, for example, with whom we'd have a very close relationship. It's just much less well advertised. And, you know, we're directly helping him prosecute a genocidal war in Yemen right now. So let's, let's be honest about that. But I think, you know, clearly... The British political establishment identifies a very close relationship with the British American political establishment and the political culture of America, therefore, has a particular influence over British political culture. I don't think the same reasons Donald Trump got elected are the same reasons that Brexit happened, but you can see some common themes between them. And this was our way of saying, we reject everything you stand for, but we were very key in all of the interviews we did and all the messaging that we put out, that we weren't just protesting him as an individual, although we were using that as the hook we were protesting all the politics he represents, many of which are represented by people here in the UK as well. Yeah. Most of the people who you found criticising our protest. So you could sort of see where the divide, mm. where the divide lay. And, and so I think that that's why it was particularly appropriate for him, this particular approach, and uh, maybe not for others. Which is why... Oh, no, I'm not even going to go there. No, <laughs> I was about to give airtime to someone that I don't need to give any airtime to. <laughs> Tell me off, Mike. (laughs) So what are the plans for him for the future then? So, uh, so yeah, there's kind of two threads. One is there's all the the replica balloons. They're all in America as far as I know. So, I mean, from a merchandise perspective, you can go out and buy Trump baby anything, basically. And there's various workshops in China churning out, you know, quite poor imitation versions of him. So if you want one, uh, there's there's no stopping you. But you've not thought personally of monetizing it through merchandise or... You know, having an online shop or something where you no, could... so that was a decision we made relatively early. I mean, one, none, you know, none of us want to be running a Trump baby shop. Uh, so, but of course, we could have, we could have, we could have effectively licensed someone to set up an official Trump baby merchandise store, and uh-huh. we, we probably could be making quite a lot of money out of that and, and funneling it into good causes. But I think we never felt very strongly about doing that, and and there is a particular feature within capitalist society and consumerist society whereby most effective or most cultural interventions or or protests that really gain traction end up at some point being commercialized in some way and i'm not coming down either side of that debate strongly but it changes the it changes the nature of it to some extent and it and it changes the the character of it and actually we just wanted to leave this be yeah because of course then you could be criticized for having an ulterior motive in what you're doing i guess we actually didn't necessarily even think of it in that way i think we just we just wanted to kind of be satisfied with what we'd achieved and and kind of leave it there and leave it in in that state with the exception of him going on to do further protests so Whilst there's various replica balloons doing the rounds in, in the US and lots of them are used in the run up to the midterms, the actual original Trump baby has been funded to go on a mini world tour. So he's already been on his first stop. He was supposed to go to Ireland. So Trump was supposed to he come to Ireland. Out of that, that pulled one. out of that. Yeah. We'll obviously take credit for that. Um, and then I can't remember why he didn't go to Ireland, but I'm sure it's because of us. And then he did go to Paris for the G7. He did. And that ended well as well. <laughs> uh, obviously, it rained and he stayed inside. Uh, Trump baby. But he fell out with Macron, didn't he? Or, uh, yeah, they, they I mean... Crossed swords on that. 
sure. Yeah. Uh, he didn't. I did, he didn't cover himself in glory. The weather was appalling. Trump stayed away. Trump baby uh, came out to play. So he went up. Uh, a couple of the original Trump baby crew went up and linked up with some French activists. And um, yeah, he flew above Paris. So that was great. And he is next going to Buenos Aires. Uh, and I can't remember exactly when that is. It's maybe tail end of this year or start of next. And at that point, probably we will have depleted our world tour budget because we, ha- you know, we have to pay someone half day a week or day a week to right. kind of manage it. But this comes out of the crowdfunding this comes budget out of the crowdfunding, that you've got. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So at some point, and you know, there's shipping costs, there's various costs associated with it. So I think after that one, we probably won't be able to fund anymore. So it might, it might be his last trip. We're hoping that he comes back. The Argentinian police have a bit of a reputation. So uh, we don't mind if he comes back with battle scars, <laughs> but we would like him to come back, ideally. One piece. Because uh, ultimately the plan is for him to end up in the Museum of London. Yeah, so I read about that. So yeah. he's, actually, he's actually sought after, isn't he, as a museum um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've had some museum creators after you too. Yeah, to donate him. Well, so so we had there was some initial interest from um, the British Museum, but only for a temporary exhibition. I don't know if it's still on. Uh, there's an exhibition about political dissent uh, curated by Ian Hislop on at the minute. So they wanted him for the launch of that exhibition, I think, but ultimately they didn't have any money. So we were like, well, we're not exactly going to give give our own money towards making your exhibition event better. And also the British Museum, you know, it's got some slightly dodgy institutional links to all companies and that kind of thing. So that didn't happen. The Museum of London, however, uh, were interested in him as a permanent exhibit or permanent item in their collection. And, you know, the Museum of London is actually just a really excellent museum. You know, they're, they're free of the kind of standard dodgy institutional connections that major cultural organizations often have. And they just have a really, I think, refreshing approach to curation. And they collate uh, and collect a lot of objects around protest. Um, not just progressive protests. They've got a massive collection of like fascist memorabilia, for example. Sure. You know, they document all elements of of political action in London. And um, we just, you know, we 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 got on with them very quickly, and we formed a bit of rapport. And ultimately, the idea is, I think, for him to to be in the the new museum, which will be opening in well, sometime in the twenty twenties. God knows when exactly on uh, in Farringdon. So it's a long way off. Um, well, I think that's I think that's an ideal, nice ideal resting home for him to yeah, go to. Then yeah. everyone can go and see him, and it'll probably be a major attraction i would have thought indeed so um it seems like a good place for him to end up yeah. um, so anyway fingers crossed he'll make it back from from argentina and be able to go well there. fingers crossed he will i mean is is a wonderful follow-on to as we said to all the satirical sort of exhibits and things we've had over the years you know going back to spitting image in the what was yeah, it yeah. the 80s and it's just a it's, it's a wonderful caricature and is brilliantly conceived and the fact yeah. that it's, it's carried on worldwide i mean do you have any negative reaction coming from America at all, or do you get any sort of criticism? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you it, on the social media, for example, for sure. I mean, we we had a fair amount of. Well, I mean, I think actually, relatively speaking, we got away with actually not that much kickback. Mm. There were some people in the media who really didn't like us: Piers Morgan, Nigel Farage, etc. But if anything, they were useful to us. I mean, Nigel Farage gave, gave us the best quote of the whole of the whole thing, really, when he said that it, it is the greatest ever insult to a sitting U.S. president. Which I mean, you can't do any better than that. So thanks, Nigel. Um, <laughs> but in general, actually, on social media, I mean, yeah, of course, we got we got hate. I mean, hate is going to hate, and all the rest of it. I mean, if you like Donald Trump, clearly something that has extremely successfully lampooned him and uh, mobilized a huge number of people who. who strongly dislike him to express that dislike you're not going to like said action right so we we got a lot of we got a lot of people pushing back but obviously that was to be expected you know we had one person ring up the office and threaten us at one point but it was fairly obvious they weren't going to follow through on it you know we didn't really feel the heat 
that much. Obviously, people in America who like Trump don't like the protest, but it was a lot less vicious uh, than I think it potentially could have been. And we were relatively obscured as individuals to some extent anyway. So, you know, there's not been any kind of lasting negative effect or negative interaction with anybody. That was Has involved. it had any benefit for you personally in so far as the work you do in the, your other sort of social arenas? Oh, I don't know, really. I mean, I certainly, you always learn loads from being involved in something like that. Mm. You know, it's fascinating to just dwell on what actually made it work. You know, it was a kind of perfect storm of yeah, a number just, of just different just hit a nerve at the right time, right place, totally. right time. And a brilliant concept. Great concept, but there were there was some ele- there were some key elements that actually we didn't have control over that combined create a, a really powerful kind of narrative and story around it. Because actually, you know, as a story, it ran for about a month. You know, that was the crazy thing about it. Initially, at least in my head, perhaps naively, I imagined it would fly more or less under the radar until the actual day that it went up, and then it would get a bit of press attention on the day, and then that would kind of be it, and we'd all go home happy. And in reality, because of this tension around whether or not it would get permission. And because of the beef that Sadiq Khan and Donald Trump have had over Twitter, because Donald Trump insulted Sadiq Khan the day after a terrorist attack in London. Nice work, mate. There was this kind of ready-made pretext, you know, that you could tell a story around. And that we couldn't have made, you know, we couldn't have have ensured that. That was just there kind of waiting to be, um, waiting to be fostered. And the fact that GLA actually initially said no was probably the best thing that happened. If they'd said yes, then it would have made it logistically more straightforward. But actually three weeks of like, are they going to get permission or they're not going to get permission and, you know, all the rest of it was what kept the journalists interested and all the rest of it. So that was, I think the main thing I took from it personally and probably benefited me was just an understanding of uh, some of the ingredients of, of what makes an intervention like that successful. I mean, in terms of my personal work, I don't think it's benefited me that much. I mean, okay, you know, occasionally you can win a few brownie points around the dinner table, but nothing more than that, really. My parents have dined out on it for, for I weeks. I bet they have. I bet they will for the rest of their days, I'm sure. So before we wrap up, just wanted to for you to tell people how they can find out where they can read more about it or find out, you know, the social media sort of um, presence on Twitter and Instagram. Trump Baby. Trump Baby. At Trump Baby on Twitter. At Trump Baby UK on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's periodically active. Usually when something's actually happening, when he was up in Paris a couple of weekends ago, he, uh, he uh, resuscitated himself. So he's not super active, but you can follow me on there. That's also the best way to get in touch with us. If you, you know, if you want to suggest something to us, um, whatever it may be, that's, that's the best way in. And, but, you know, apart from that, you know, it's, uh, there isn't that much out there. There's no website, you know, we don't have a Trump baby podcast or anything like that. And, and our future, now. Our, well, <laughs> one, one episode, our future plans are pretty much as described, you know, we'll get as many kind of international visits out of him as possible but you know we don't have unlimited funds so maybe in four years time uh, you can come and see him in the, in, in the museum of london well that would be wonderful i mean if, as i say if he's not uh, going to do when he's finished his world tour and he's exhausted yeah, yeah. and beaten and, and bruised back and he crossed. comes back and ends up in the museum of london that'll be absolutely wonderful then everyone can uh, benefit from the uh, his wonderful grimace yeah. his constipated face and little hands yeah yeah that'd be wonderful well it's been an absolute pleasure max having you on the podcast today thank you no. very much for joining us my pleasure indeed. and uh, keep us posted on future developments trump baby associated will do thank you very much no my pleasure thanks for having me take care